is written and recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to all Elders, past and present, around Australia, and any First Nations listeners today. Sovereignty was never ceded. This episode contains the English, their colonisation, and all the associated crimes that go with that. It also contains some rude language, and so it may not be suitable for all listeners. Thing about me. I have driven 300 kilometers in the past 24 hours. <laughs> Hello, I'm Nicola, and I have driven 300 kilometers in the past 24 hours. I am also a secondary school teacher and a historian with an interest in the histories of crime, gender, masculinity, and medicine. You happy? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm Hannah. Hi. I won't yell at my audience because okay. I love you guys, unlike Nicola, and I am. I didn't go anywhere today. Was, I got out of my pajamas. That's the step number I'm proud one. Of you, Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and I am a historian that researches women's protests in the middle of the twentieth century. Awesome. Uh, and welcome to Women of War, a podcast where we women talk about women in war and all the different things they did, from fighting to spying to nursing to not nursing to providing other kinds of comfort, and so on. Hi, kids. So, um, where are we going this week, Hannah? This week. Off to Scotland. To Scotland? Yeah. Oh, Danny boy. Please stop. The pipes, the pipes are gone. We're going to Scotland to talk about Agnes Randolph. I'm just going to keep talking over the singing. Who was born in 1312 in the north of Scotland. <laughs> so this week, we're going to look at Agnes Randolph who was born in 1312 in the north of Scotland. She was the eldest daughter of Thomas Randolph, the first Earl of Moray, and the great-niece of Robert the Bruce, Robert the Bruce, King of Scots. So Agnes's family were well-versed in fighting against the English in the First War of Scottish Independence. So I actually have heard of Agnes before, because when I was a kid I loved the original cartoon of Horrible Histories. Do you um, remember that one? Yeah. Horrible Histories! I had, I had some episodes taped. <gasps> I would love to see those, because you can't find anything about it online yeah. at all. And it was the most lazily animated show ever. It was fantastic. But they did do one episode where they went back to Scotland. Because I was like seven, I'm like not actually paying attention. Yeah. But every time they said Robert the Bruce, a chorus would be like, Robert the Bruce! <laughs> and it's like in the, the back of my mind whenever he comes up. I was just like, Robert the Bruce. But they also did a, a little sketch on the new horrible histories about Agnes as well. I don't I'm remember. I'm pretty that. sure it was about her. I'll find it. out. Yeah. If they mention something, I'll be like, hmm, that's the one. So, before we talk about Agnes, though, we are going to talk about, we're going to jump on our little horses and do a quick ride by of the lead up to the war, the first war of Scottish independence. I didn't bring coconuts, I'm sorry. Um, are you suggesting that coconuts migrate? From 1249, Scotland had been ru ruled by King Alexander III, and everything was peace, love, and happiness. No, that's Irish. Then Alexander died in 1286 after he fell from his horse, and so we should probably get off these horses for this summary. The heir to his throne was his granddaughter Margaret, but there were a few issues with this. One, she was three years old. Two, she was in Norway. And three, she died in 1290 on her way over to Scotland to rule as a seven-year-old. So she, she didn't really have a good reign going for her. 
Since it was unclear who should take over as ruler of Scotland, several different people were like, it's me, it's me, pick me, pick me. To prevent an outbreak of civil war, which can only be cured by antibiotics, which haven't been invented yet, Scottish nobles asked King Edward I of England to step in and decide who had the rightful claim. Initially, Edward decided in favour of John Bolliol? 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 If you want an idea of what kind of king John would be, his nickname was Empty Coat. Which... I don't think it was actually Coat, what they were saying. Yeah. In a shock to no one, Edward later decided that he should be King of Scotland as well as England and invaded in March 1296. By July, Mr Three Rats in a trench coat had abdicated and Edward was telling Scottish nobles to start paying him tribute. And they were like, hmm, we should do this in Ireland. <laughs> um, as generally happens when the English take someone's land, there was immediate resistance. By the following year, 1297, Scotland was openly at war with England. And if you've watched Horrible Histories, um, you'll have heard the banger that is William Wallace, Scottish rebel, possibly six foot seven! Um, and he was he and this guy Andrew de Moray were the first leaders of Scottish resistance. In mid twelve ninety seven, Edward heard that Scottish aristocrats were joining the uprising. So he sent a force to subdue the resistance. Leading this force was Robert the Bruce, the Earl of Carrick, who made his way to Lanarkshire in central Scotland. He wasn't the Bruce at this point. He was just Robert Bruce. Robert Bruce, the Earl of Carrick. The the, the would come later. Yeah, he's got to find the the on the ground. <laughs> And he made his way to Lanarkshire in central Scotland. It must have been a slow journey because it gave the Bruce plenty of time <laughs> to think. He had an epiphany. Why on earth was he supporting the man trying to overthrow Bruce's own people? Or in fancier words, quote, No man holds his flesh and blood in hatred and I am no exception. I must join my own people and the nation in whom I was born. End quote. Notice I haven't done a Scottish accent. I was very surprised then. Because I don't know what it sounds like. I'm like, groundskeeper, Willie. <laughs> Grease me up, woman. <laughs> Okie dokie. I was waiting for that quote to be Irish, to be fair. Keep waiting. Yep. On the 11th of September, 1297, at the Battle of Stirling Bridge, the Scottish forces forced the English to retreat out of Scotland. A month later, Wallace led the Scottish, Scottish forces to invade England, putting a plus four Uno card on top of the other plus four Uno card. The Scots pillaged and raided their way after the English, which, you know, not good form. But also, payback's a bitch. <laughs> and, you know, also innocent villagers had no part in the war. It's very complicated. When they returned to Scotland, Wallace was knighted by one of the Scottish nobles, which I'm not sure how legally binding that is. I mean, it's all made up anyway. <laughs> this is true. This kind is like, true. I, when I saw the footage of John Monash being knighted for the first time, I was like, this is so silly. <laughs> It's so, like, they knighted him in the battlefield for the first time in 200 years. It's like, they still got a cushion for him. <laughs> it's so silly. It's so silly. He was also given the title of the Guardian of the Kingdom of Scotland, um, and he was a placeholder for King John of the unoccupied North Face puffer jacket, yeah. John Balliol. How dare you slander Daniel Andrews' <laughs> good news jacket for this. What a flashback. <laughs> After being defeated at the Battle of Falkirk in July 1298, Wallace gave up his title as Guardian and went to Europe to try and drum up support for the Scots. Robert Bruce and John Common... Yeah. Yeah. Robert Bruce and John Common took over as Guardian. You never actually explain what Guardian was. It's the placeholder for King John of the oh, Unoccupied sorry. North Face yeah. puffer jacket. Alright. I'm very tired. <laughs> what follows are several years of toing and froing. You take a castle, we take a castle. Robert Bruce redefected back to his English sides, likely because he was no longer happy to sacrifice his land, family, friends, etc. to an exiled king who couldn't even wear a coat properly. 
In May 1303, after years of smaller battles and skirmishes, Edward again launched a proper invasion of Scotland. Though Wallace made Edward's armies progress difficult, progress they did, and in February 1304, most of the Scottish leaders surrendered to the English. John Common negotiated with Edward for more lenient terms of surrender and hoped that everything could go back to the peaceful period like it was under Alexander III. Except William Wallace, Scottish rebel, was running around <laughs> causing trouble, refusing to accept Eddie Boy as the King of Scotland. The last King of Scotland. That's not funny. That was a war crime. He was finally captured in August 1305 and then he was hanged, drawn and quartered, um, which is not fun. And his head was put on display on a spike on London Bridge. And his limbs were sent to Newcastle, Berwick, Stirling and Perth, none of which were towns and or cities in Australia at the time. So more shit happened. There were secret pacts made, a parliament set up to decide how Scotland would be run, and knives in backs, both figuratively and literally. Robert Bruce was involved in all of these things. He had land and money and a claim to the Scottish throne. Edward was suspicious of Bruce's loyalty. Bruce had a chat with Common and suggested that the best way to protect Scottish interests would be for Common and Bruce to enter into a secret pact to support each other's claim to the throne in exchange for land. Just like Keating claimed Hawke promised him the lodge oh. in the 90s. Or was it the 80s? History never repeats. <laughs> Poor Keating just like nodding like, yeah! <laughs> He said he'd give it to me! <laughs> they did bury the, the lead, the spike, the, the hatchet before Bob Hawke died. Though, which burying nice. the lead and burying the hatchet are two very different things. I don't fucking know. I drove 300 kilometres. Leave me alone. So they made their secret pact, but Common was a little snitch who told on Bruce to Edward. Bruce and Common had it out in February 1306 when Bruce stabbed Common for his betrayal. Bruce fled. Common was not dead and would have likely survived his wound if Bruce's mates hadn't then stabbed him again to make sure he was dead. <laughs> this forced Bruce's hand. If he didn't claim the throne and set himself up as king, he'd be on the run forever unless he was captured and then executed. So with the support of the Bishop of Glasgow and other Scottish nobles, Bruce was crowned as King Robert I of Scotland in March in 1306. And so it's really important to have the, the church on your side because they're also running a lot of the country and, like, the daily stuff that they're going on is yeah. run by the church. Yeah. So Thomas Randolph, Bruce's nephew, was one of those who supported his uncle's claim to the throne. I always support my uncles. And was present when Bruce was crowned. Edward didn't accept the new king, of course, and the English and the Scots faced off again against each other in many battles over the next few years. This led to many more games of castle swap, and <laughs> Bruce briefly went into hiding in 1306 to 1307. Edward I died in July 1307 and was succeeded by his son, and I don't want to shock anybody, but his name was... Edward II. I'm shocked. I know, right? Randolph briefly defected after being <laughs> captured by the English, but when he was released, he returned to Bruce and the Scottish cause. In return for his support, Bruce appointed Randolph the first Earl of Moray in northern Scotland in 1312. Randolph joined Bruce on most of his campaigns around the English, against the English, sorry, and was one of Bruce's most trusted men, and it was around this time Agnes was born. In 1314, Bruce recaptured most of the castles in Scotland the English had taken over. This led to the Battle of Bannockburn in June, a monumental victory for the Scots. This effectively ended Edward II's attempts to take Scotland. Bruce spent the next decade occasionally invading England and helping the Irish to repel Edward II's attempts to take over Ireland since he'd failed in Scotland. In 1323, Edward II was so over Bruce's raids on England that he negotiated a 13-year truce which both sides promptly ignored to continue on as they had been. 
1327, Edward II died and was replaced by, and you get absolutely zero points if you guess the name, Edward III. In May 1328, Mr. III, or more accurately his mum and stepdad, <laughs> as he was only 15, signed the Treaty of Edinburgh and Northampton, which formally declared Scotland an independent kingdom and ratified Bruce as king. Bruce died just over a year later. <laughs> God, that's squared Oh, no! <laughs> and he was succeeded by his five-year-old son, David. I don't believe in anyone called David. That's an interesting stance. Yeah. Five-year-olds are notoriously good at making rational decisions, but it's okay because Thomas Randolph, Agnes's dad, was acting as his regent. Honestly, I've met a lot of five-year-olds, and they are some of them do make more logical decisions than politicians. You. And me. Yes. <laughs> So, Thomas Randolph, Agnes's dad, is acting as regent, so she's kind of like the princess-in-law. Yeah, yeah. She's in a pretty high Princess position. Regent Agnes. Yeah. So, in 1332, Columbus sailed the ocean, but Edward Balliol, the man who filled out the coat his father couldn't, decided he had a better claim to the throne than the eight-year-old David, who existed. This Balliol was the original John Balliol's son, and he was supported by Edward III, who was now 20 and really annoyed that the treaty that had been signed in his name. This support was technically unofficial as Edward had signed the treaty and so shouldn't be helping people break it, which is why you should never have like a bloody six-year-old be king of your country. Mm -hmm. But all he did was officially forbid Balliol from invading Scotland by land. By sea was fine. Randolph was ready and prepared to deal with the invasion until he died a couple of weeks before <laughs> Balliol set sail and thus began the second war of Scottish independence. So what has Agnes been up to? We know, like, pretty much nothing about her early life. So, picture Merida from Rave. I which, wanted to like Rave so much. It which was fine. Is, it combines a few different historical eras, but it kind of gives you the sense of what's going on for Agnes. Yeah. So, she was the daughter of Scottish nobility. She likely had access to tutors and would have been well-educated in household management, needlework, and proper behaviour. She may have been educated in a nunnery. The nuns doing a lot of educating of... of Noble girls at this point. She I would have... sew another tapestry. That'd be good. <laughs> She'd do another one. We just finished the last one. <laughs> she would have been expected to marry, likely to help her father's political prospects. Though she would have kept her last name, which was unusual for the time in England, but the standard practice in Scotland, which is why she stays Agnes Randolph. There you go. Yeah. So once married, Agnes would have been expected to pop out some heirs and support her husband. Crucially, this support would also have included offering her advice on her husband's business affairs, particularly when he was away from home. So much more like, in a way, a modern wife yeah. than we see with like the English in the same period. Yeah. Like, I'm sure she still had very limited rights of movement. It's very much so. in this kind of like that kind of concept of the woman behind the throne kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, the like. power behind the throne. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Agnes was married in 1324 to Patrick, the ninth Earl of Dunbar, or the Earl of the Marsh. I don't get it. It's not a joke. Oh, it sounded like a joke. <laughs> it's his name. <laughs> Keep reading and so, it'll be explained. I'm so tired. March and Dunbar are unhelpfully interchangeable in this <laughs> so period. So he was both the Earl of Dunbar it and the Earl of March. Like, I was like, is Dunbar a month? And that's why it's funny. <laughs> so Agnes's marriage was likely a way for her father to add to his own power. The Dunbars were a very old and powerful Scottish family in possession of large tracts of land and a whole bunch of castles. Patrick first became involved in the Scottish fight for independence by helping the English. Off to a great start, Patrick. After the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314 that we mentioned earlier that went badly for English King Edward II, Patrick offered Edward sanctuary at Dunbar Castle. 
Dunbar was on the route back to England and being on the coast was the perfect place for Edward to make an escape by sea, which is exactly what he did when Patrick set him up with a fishing boat. It's not clear why Patrick supported the English side. Perhaps he just really liked soggy fish and chips or hated haggis or could see like the spice trade coming down the pipe and was like, <laughs> I want a part of that. Uh, regardless, he didn't stay an English supporter for long. So by 1315, when old mate Robert the Bruce was being crowned, Patrick was present at the coronation. So we don't know why he changed sides, but he did. He later fought to recapture the nearby town of Berwick from the English in 1318 and co-signed a letter to the Pope in 1320, arguing for Scottish independence. When Agnes's father Thomas died in 1332, Patrick took over as one of the guardians of the crown. So Patrick was now in the job of repelling the English forces under Edward Balliol. This did not go well. Though the Scots had an early victory at the Battle of Kinghorn, they lost badly at the Battle of Duplet Moor, when their own enthusiasm to overcome the English made their attack disorganised. The Scottish couldn't break the front line of their opponents and were quickly trapped when more English forces arrived at the rear, which meant game over for the Scots. For now. Yeah, throughout history, it's always like the... the um it's like, let's be unorganised, we've got more men, but let's be unorganised. And the English or the Romans or whoever are like, hey, here's our less amount of men who are very organised. They only worked in Russia. Uh, <laughs> did it. Anyway, Balliol of the, my dad bought this coat in the 80s, was crowned King of Scotland in September 1332, and he remained unchallenged in power for three months. This is giving me labour flashbacks. <laughs> Believing that the Scots had settled down and were... It's actually a Tony Abbott flashback. Believing that the Scots had settled down and would accept Balliol as king as long as the Scottish Parliament supported him, Balliol made the very logical decision to send a lot of his English forces back to England, which backfired immediately when he was surprised at home in the early morning, perhaps during a wake-up wee. Oh, why? Why'd you make me say that? <laughs> I don't like that. By an attack led by Scots loyal to Robert the Bruce's eight-year-old son... The kid that Randolph and then Patrick Dunbar and Archibald Douglas were guardians or regents for. The Scots killed most of the English guarding Balliol, but he did manage to escape through a hole in the wall in his birthday suit. Balliol set off back to England, hair and... I hate you so much. <laughs> this is like revenge for everything I've ever done this season. Balliol set off back to horse, hair and willy blowing in the breeze on the back of his horse. <laughs> Edward III abandoned his pretense of neutrality and supported Balliol in a renewed attack on Scotland while also naked. Meanwhile, the Scots were raiding... He did put on clothes at some point. No, he didn't. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Scots were raiding the top of England, which was probably satisfying in an eye-for-an-eye kind of way, but it also gave Edward the good excuse to claim he did have grounds for abandoning the 13-year truce and straight-up invaded Scotland. So, in March 1333, an English army led by both Edward Balliol and Edward III attacked Berwick. A few months earlier, Patrick of Dunbar had been appointed the governor of Berwick Castle. Bad timing. Berwick was well suited to surviving a siege, but the English attacks were relentless, and the Scottish forces were eventually forced to surrender in mid-July. This surrender came after the Battle of Halidon Hill, when Scottish forces led by Douglas marched up from the south to engage with the English forces. But the Scots literally had to get up the hill to reach the English which is strategically a bad time, as it allowed the English to use gravity to their advantage and start shooting arrows down at the Scots. By the time the non-arrow-to-death Scots made it up the hill, they were extra exhausted and were met with spears. So the Scots fled, pursued by the English, and thousands were killed. Compared to between 7 and 14 English casualties. Oh, <laughs> so you, you've that's got not good results. Maximum 14 compared to thousands. Yeah. 
Patrick survived, but was forced to prove his loyalty to Edward III. England claimed Berwick and Dunbar, as well as Roxburgh and Edinburgh, and Dunbar Castle was destroyed. And then it was built up again when Edward III forced Patrick to rebuild and use Dunbar Castle as a garrison for English forces. Luckily for this episode, however, Dunbar Castle is somehow, and it is actually unclear how this happened, returned to Patrick and Agnes's control by 1338. So in 1335, the peace truce officially expired and Edward got together his largest army yet to invade Scotland properly. There was like 15 dudes. It's huge. <laughs> in response, Patrick gathered his own forces and joined Scots who were fighting this invasion. And the French rocked up? To help the Scots. Yep. Yeah. Which would be a factor in the beginning of the misnamed Hundred Years' War, but that's a story for another day. The year got off to a great start for Agnes, the year being 1338. Her husband was out and about and doing who knows what with who knows who. And then not even two weeks into the new year, the English rocked up at her door. Exactly why the English wanted Dunbar Castle at this point isn't exactly clear. Probably it was because it was a very strategic location, like most castles, and would therefore, as had been proven before, be a good spot for an English base. Whatever the reason, the English knew Patrick was not at home and the castle was poorly defended by only a few guards. And some women. An easy steal, right? How chivalrous. <laughs> so the English were led by William Montagu, the first Earl of Salisbury. Montagu initially asked very nicely if Agnes would mind handing over the keys, but Agnes reportedly replied... Oh, no, no, thank you. No, not, <laughs> not today. today. Thank you. <laughs> Quote, Of Scotland's king I hold my house, I pay him meat and feed. And I will keep my good old house, while my house will keep me. End quote. She only spoke in rhymes. Like, that's... Yeah, she was like the Eminem of her yeah, day. Yeah, like, it's not often reported in the sources, but she had mm. a very specific condition. She could only speak in rhymes. <laughs> Alternatively, Scotland's king gave me this house in return for some tithing. Since he hasn't asked for it back, and I've done my end of the bargain, I'm going to stay here, thank you very much, and I reckon it will be hard to break in. Which is how you get a siege. The English, being men, tried to force their way in, <laughs> first using catapults to just throw big-ass rocks against the walls. In response, Agnes told her maids to go up and dust the ramparts with their handkerchiefs, which is basically her way of saying, fuck you. Yep. Um, so it was on to the next plan. Montague, yes, Montague had come prepared for a siege. He had brought with him a sow, a type of siege engine which included catapults, a battering ram, which is a kind of ram used to batter things, and a wooden tower, a siege tower, which could be pushed up against a castle or city's walls, and then it allows attackers to climb up the walls while being protected against the defensive arches that would be in the castle they were trying to invade. Yes. So when the catapults didn't work, Montague ordered the siege tower to be put against the walls so the English could climb up and overwhelm Agnes's guards, which would have worked great, except that Agnes pushed back down one of the big boulders Montague had catapulted earlier and crushed the tower. How embarrassing! <laughs> so clearly Montague was going to have to use something other than brute force to get inside the castle walls. So Montague tried to use bribery. He offered to pay one of Agnes's guards to leave the front gate unlocked so the English could just stroll on in one night when Agnes was least expecting it. The guard, being a smart man, took Montague's money and then promptly warned Agnes. When the English tried to come in, she was prepared. As soon as the first man entered the castle courtyard, Agnes ordered her guards to lower the portcullis, or the gate, and so the Englishman was cut off. This was supposed to be Montague, who should have been leading the attack, but an eager soldier had rushed up instead. So Agnes didn't get Montague, but she did get it a chance for an epic burn, calling out, quote, Farewell, Montague. I intended that you should have supped with us and assist us in defending the castle against the English. End quote. 
I mean, I'm assuming this was an epic burn in 14th century Scotland. Because <laughs> sure it, it doesn't quite last the years of distance, well, I think but... It, she's basically <laughs> saying, like, if I kept you as a hostage, they would have stopped. Yeah. Bitch. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So Agnes was queen of the insults, which is why Hannah likes her so much. Because when Hannah does get insulting, it really hurts. <laughs> At one point, because you're like you're so nice, usually he's not expecting it with me. It's just like constant barrage. So at one point, Agnes sent out a freshly baked loaf of bread and some wine to Montague and his men, which is hilarious on its own, but it also was Agnes showing, or at least saying to him, um, that she had enough food to spare and therefore enough food to survive a long siege. Um, Montague's next plan involved Agnes's brother, John Randolph. Montague had managed to capture John and so brought him to the front of the castle. Montague ordered John, placed in a noose, and threatened to hang him. I like to think there were some English soldiers in the background, like, trying to build a scaffold. Like, ah! <laughs> Quick, get the nails! So, like, Agnes wasn't very concerned. So, calling out to Montague, she told him, Get on with it! Because, um, if he was going to do that, because she'd inherit John's lands after his death, so it seemed like a good idea. So, by this point, the siege had been going on for several months, and, like, you can imagine Montague getting madder and madder as yeah. he tries to think of new plans, like, Looney Tunes plots, like, If I bake a really big cake... I could hide inside and jump out when she blows out the candles, or like I'll strap a giant rocket to myself. Like, He's like painting like a realistic tunnel yeah. on like a rock outside. Like somehow this will make her come out to investigate the tunnel. <laughs> There's a giant weight that like drops on Agnes. And then it jumps on him, but he's not dead because yeah. Lord Newton's logic. So Agnes and her crew were now beginning to run out of food and other supplies. And who knows what would have happened next, although I do suspect Agnes would have figured something out. But luckily she didn't have to. In early June, Sir Alexander Ramsey, Ramsey of Dalhousie, who had been constantly confusing, confounding the English henchmen, <laughs> snuck in the back door to Dunbar, the postern gate on the coastal side of the castle where the English couldn't see. Poor Montague. Outside the front gates, he was waiting with some of his forces, painting fake tunnels to try and entice Agnes out, when all of a sudden the gates opened and Ramsey's men charged out. Montague and his men were forced back and forced to admit their defeat. The siege was officially ended on the 10th of June, 1338. So, what happened to Agnes after the siege? It might not shock you, dear listeners, listener, to know that, uh, like many women, she just vanishes from the historical accounts. Yep. It doesn't look like she and Patrick had any children, um... And the second, like, and it could also be because the Second Scottish War of Independence continued for another 20 years, um, and they were too busy to write anything down. So the war ended in 1357 with another truce, the Treaty of Berwick. Neither the English or the Scots really gained an upper hand in the previous decades. So Agnes died in 1369. Nice. nice. And was buried in Mornington. Mordington, not Mornington. <laughs> Patrick died a few months later. Agnes, however, is remembered for her courage and bravery in the face of overwhelming odds. Her actions may not have made a significant difference in the war, but perhaps they did. I mean, they certainly kept one of the strategically significant castles out of the hands of the English. A ballad of her deeds was written in later centuries, in which Montague is said to have proclaimed, quote, She makes a stir and tower and trench, that brawling, boisterous Scottish wench. Came I early, came I late, I found Agnes at the gate, end quote. He probably didn't really say anything like that. But, you know, it's a good legacy to end thing on, I think, you know. A rolling boisterous Scottish wench who wouldn't get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> I love it because a lot of women did take part in siege warfare. Yeah. Because they're like, A, it's your house. Yep. And B, like, you know, you've got all the men with their bows and arrows and swords, so the women can, like, throw some boiling oil down, yeah. like, as a treat. Yeah. 
<laughs> some boiling lead as a treat. You deserve to throw some rocks as, as a, a treat. treat. Yeah, you know, you can throw some dead animals yeah. as a treat. We don't, we don't have the stories of the women and their role in sieges. Yeah. Um, but they were there. Yeah, and, and also yeah. you'd have to like be cooking and thinking of foods you could make with less than what you would usually have and like yeah. grinding up grass yeah. and stuff like that. Like You can't, you can't do a siege too. without people running the household. Yeah, it's like a whole, like, you've got to think about the logistics of yeah, it all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which I enjoyed. Oh, Danny boy, the pipes, the pipes it's not Scottish. From Glen to Glen. Anyway, um, that was a fun episode. I enjoyed, I like how we've gone back to slightly shorter ones, because it's less like, I enjoy doing all the long-term, long-form research. I'm playing with my earrings. Um, I enjoy doing a little long form research, but also it's really tiring. Sometimes we need a little break. Do that. Yeah. Speaking of little breaks, this is sadly the last episode for the season. We will come back. We will be back. We've gone back. We'll come back for season four sometime. But this is this is the end of season three. Uh, I would have done one more episode, but I didn't want to. And <laughs> I'm going busy. to Italy. Italy. Oh, it's a hard luck life. It's, it's really you. hard, you know? Yeah. Like, I've got to go to Italy for a conference. As for me, I'm working full time, and I don't know if you know this, but it's really hard, and I'm tired <laughs> all the time. Oh, I've had to, I've needed to get a haircut for seven months and just hadn't had time. I'll do it. I'm this close to shaving it again. I shaved like, your head last time. I can do it again. You did, actually. Hmm. I'll think about it. <laughs> Um, I won't this time go, I don't know what I'm doing, as I hold the razor. Yeah, that was pretty scary. Yeah. And I, that bit of my ear never grew back. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. You don't need it. I don't. No. But um, it's been a really massive year for both of us. Had us finished with a PhD. Me, full-time hard yeah. work. Um, and other stuff. So it's been a very exciting year as well. Yeah. And it continues to be an exciting year. It does. Uh, and we'd like to thank everyone for all their wonderful yes. support over the past few months yes. and their patience when somebody went to a conference and got COVID. And, <laughs> and then I was like, oh, great, I have four weeks to write something. And then I didn't. <laughs> but yeah. we, we will be back. And we hope you enjoyed season three. We had a lot of fun making it. Yeah. 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 If you want to find us to talk to us now about this season, about future seasons, about ideas you have, about feedback. Recipes for sieges. I don't know. <laughs> I actually quite like that. Rock cakes. Yeah. Yeah. Chocolate lava cake. Fruit cake would work real good. Cause I hate fruit cake. I hate it too, but there's so much alcohol in it, it will last forever. And it will burn. So if you throw it at them on yeah. fire. And it's hefty. It's a hefty boy. It's a hefty cake. Cake shouldn't be that dense. It's a hefty boy. <laughs> anyway, you can find us at womenofwarpod.com. You can find us on all the social medias at womenofwarpod. Uh, and you can get a $10 note out of your wallet if you're Australian and write Women of War on Mary Gilmore's face. Why not? <laughs> and then send it to us because we're poor. I'll turn... No, I'm not because I work full-time now. But um, Oh, ooh, I have a full-time wage. Um, I work 70 hours a week. I get paid for work. What's I get paid like? for 40 hours a week, but I get <laughs> work 70 hours a week. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's been real fun. And we've met some great people. And it's awesome. And... I don't know where I was going with that sentence. But have a great week. Have a great, like, rest of the year. Yeah, we'll see you when we see you. <laughs> see you when, hear you when we hear ya. No, we never hear them. Oh, yeah. They hear us. I'm sorry. Anyway. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Hi, I'm Nicola. I hated that. Hi, I'm Nicola. <laughs>
What? <laughs> We're off to a really good start. You just spilled tea on yourself. That's because I got tea to spill. The tea is, this is Hannah. And together... <laughs> Alright. Hi, I'm Nicola. Hi, I'm Hannah. Are we not doing introduce? To do, to do? I thought we were going to start again because you were like just sitting there like... Do, 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 do. <laughs> Your eye, well, you paused. Fine. Hi, I'm Nicola. <laughs> Action. Hi, I'm Nicola. I hated that voice so much. I hate her. Who is she? Is that your teacher voice? No. My teacher's like, hello everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Alright. You can sit down. Yes, miss. Right in my mouth. I hit myself with it first. Good. <laughs> Alright, start again. It's fucking set to an Irish melody and it's by an English songwriter. It's not even Scottish. I wasn't the one that brought it up. You did. Oh, I'm sorry. Was... <laughs> I do a lot of things. I did nothing about Danny Boy. Yeah, that's what I liked about the Battle of Hamel, because they're like, tanks can carry so much food! Can you believe this? Also, there's a bunch of guns, but look at all this food! Food is quite crucial. Yeah, it's yeah. if your, your armies or like your people are angry and hungry, they're not going to do much for you, yeah. unless you can promise them this food at the end. Yeah. yeah. And that only works once. <laughs> and you, you have to deliver yeah. or it will never work mm -hmm. again.